The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A guide to the lunar spectacles in October. Some tips for improving communication while wearing masks. The surprising discovery that some of Edward Hopper's early works were copied. And the wearable social distancing tech allowing the London Marathon to go forward. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Tomorrow is the first day of October, or as I refer to it, the first day of Halloween. And despite everything that will be different about Halloween celebrations this year, there's actually a lot of cool things lining up in the skies this month. And since this show doesn't go out until the afternoon, and I know many of you listen to it the next day, I wanted to give you a heads up today so that you'll be ready for tomorrow, which to you might be today. Anyways, as you may have noticed, this year Halloween falls on a Saturday, and that evening, or technically the next morning, is the end of daylight savings time here in most of the United States, which means that we could give ourselves an extra hour of revelry and not feel the repercussions the next day. And in any typical year, this would be great news for partiers and any late-night Halloween events. In reality, it's probably just going to mean staying up a little late with some scary movies or on some type of themed Zoom call. But fortunately, there is still one more thing that makes Halloween 2020 unique this year. And that is the fact that there will be a full moon on Halloween. It's not just good news for werewolves, it's also surprisingly uncommon. A full moon on Halloween only happens every 18 to 19 years. And even more than that, for this year, the entire world will be able to see the full moon, something that hasn't happened since World War II. Or it's as close as it's been since then, anyhow. Astronomy educator Jeffrey Hunt points out that an official full moon really only occurs in that brief instant when the moon is opposite the sun from Earth. But even using the full 24 hours of October 31st as the definition, anywhere west of the international dateline, like central Australia, New Zealand, eastern Russia, and Guam, will miss out on the Halloween full moon because it will already be November for them. But we don't just have a full moon on Halloween. The month of October is kicking off with a full moon tomorrow on the 1st, which makes the moon on Halloween even more rare. It is a Halloween blue moon. 
Both of these full moons, regardless of when they occur, are tied to the autumnal equinox, which occurred on the 22nd of September and marks the beginning of fall in the northern hemisphere and the start of spring in the southern hemisphere. The first full moon after the autumnal equinox is traditionally referred to as the harvest moon. Usually occurring in September, the harvest moon is notable because of how early it rises, not too long after sunset. And it's called the harvest moon because just as our days are getting shorter, as it gets dark earlier and earlier, and just as farmers would be wrapping up their harvests, this moon appears early in the evening to give them a little bit more light to finish up their work by. The next full moon after the harvest moon is referred to as the hunter's moon. Quoting Universe Today, The name dates back to the First Nations of North America. It is so called because it was during the month of October, when the deers had fattened themselves over the course of the summer, that hunters tracked and killed prey by autumn moonlight, stockpiling food for the coming winter. End quote. The hunter's moon is also sometimes referred to as the blood moon because of its orangey appearance which it shares with the harvest moon. And the cause of that is their early rising time. When you're looking at the moon lower in the sky, closer to the horizon, you're looking through more of the Earth's atmosphere. Quoting Earth Sky, The greater thickness of the atmosphere in the direction of a horizon scatters blue light most effectively, but it lets red light pass through to your eyes, so a full moon near the horizon, any full moon near the horizon, takes on a yellow or orange or reddish hue. End quote. The hunter's moon can occasionally fall in November, and the harvest moon often falls in September, so it's pretty rare to have both of them happening in October this year. And if you are all amped up about the moon after this, I will drop a link in the show notes to a website called Moon Today, which was started by a science writer named Jatan Mehta, who just seems to love the moon. The site has tons of high-quality photos and explanations of features all over the moon's surface, including craters, mountains, lava channels, and more. So check out that site, and be sure to check out the sky early in the evening on October 1st for the first full moon of the month. When we all started wearing masks out and about, there were a lot of half-serious jokes about needing to perfect the art of smizing. That is, smiling with your eyes, a term popularized by Tyra Banks back in the day. But even if you've gotten pretty good at smizing, which honestly, it doesn't seem like many of us have, there are still many other hurdles to overcome with regards to communicating from behind a mask. I've discussed previously different initiatives being implemented to assist people who are deaf, hard of hearing, or have other auditory processing conditions, like transparent face masks and grocery stores training their clerks on basic signs. But here are a few more general tips to improve how we communicate with one another when half of our face is hidden. The first most important thing is that if you're having trouble being heard, resist the urge to remove your face mask. I was definitely guilty of this at the start, I usually caught myself, but the instinct is absolutely there. But you should fight it, or else there is hardly any point to wearing a mask around another person in the first place. Lifehacker has a few additional tips, like using a mask voice, that is, being aware that the mask may muffle your voice a bit, and that the lack of lip reading or facial expressions can make your words more difficult to process. So consider speaking a bit more loudly and clearly. 
Lifehacker's senior parenting editor, Megan Morovsik Walbert, recommends channeling your inner kindergarten teacher. And when you're not the one talking, be an active listener. Since your face is mostly concealed, little quirks that often show the other person you're engaged are no longer seen. So you need to employ other signals of active listening, like head nodding, saying mm-hmm, and paraphrasing what the person has said back to you. Like saying, what I'm hearing is, or so what you're saying is. And on that note, we can up our body language and gestures to compensate for lost facial expressions as well. One interesting recommendation is to make sure your toes and torso are pointed towards the person you're talking to. Quoting Lifehacker, The direction our feet are pointing during a conversation can signal our interest. For instance, in a situation where you're speaking with someone but have your toes pointed towards the nearest door, you're letting the person know you'd rather be someplace else. End quote. It's all about putting in a little extra effort to affirm your engagement in the interaction. I mean, you know when you're on Zoom talking about something, maybe giving a presentation, and everyone else either has their cameras off or are frozen or are just too small and grainy to see their reactions clearly, and it feels like the worst thing because you're not getting any subtle feedback cues? It's similar when we all have our masks on. So anything we can do to reassure each other with active listening strategies will go a long way. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. So, an art history doctoral student at the Courtauld Institute in London has just caused quite a stir in the art world. Lewis Shadwick has discovered that at least three of Edward Hopper's early oil paintings are copies of other artists' work. Two of them come from a magazine for amateur artists that was published before Hopper's paintings of the same scenes, and a third appears to be copied from a Victorian painted porcelain plaque. A painting by Bruce Crane that appeared in the magazine The Art Interchange in 1890 called A Winter Sunset is nearly identical to Hopper's 1897 Old Ice Pond at Nyack. A painting that also appeared in The Art Interchange in 1886 called Ships by Edward Moran is a near-identical match to Edward Hopper's Ships from 1898. And the Victorian porcelain plaque based on an unidentified painting I think needs a little bit more verification, but it does look just like Hopper's 1897 Church and Landscape. You can see all of these side by side in the New York Times article linked in the show notes. But a couple of notes on this. Carter Foster, a Hopper expert and deputy director at the Blanton Museum of Art in Texas, notes that it's not at all unusual for artists of the time to have gotten their start by copying other works. It was part of the learning process. But the problem is that much of the myth of Hopper that he leaned into a bit while he was alive was that he had a preternatural talent, especially evident in his early oil paintings that he created all on his own. Quoting the New York Times, For Kim Kanati, curator of drawings and prints at the Whitney Museum in New York, where she is at work on a big Hopper show, the copying that Mr. Shadwick revealed has more important repercussions. 
It cuts straight through the widely held perception of Hopper as an American original, she said, as an artist whose innate genius allowed him to emerge on the scene without a debt to others. The only real influence I've ever had was myself, he once claimed. End quote. And importantly, Hopper's version of Old Ice Pond at Nyack is currently being sold by an art gallery for between $300,000 and $400,000. Will these revelations change anything about that price point and other sales of his early works? Shadwick's discovery is still in the process of being compiled and peer-reviewed, but perhaps the market and Hopper's legacy will shift somewhat in the near future. You know, Hopper's art has become a symbol of everyday life in mid-century America, his paintings brought to life the predominant thoughts and feelings of the time. Quoting again from the New York Times, Critics and scholars have always been intrigued by an awkwardness that Hopper allowed himself in many of his classic paintings. Seas that looked more painted than liquid in his famous groundswell, the awkward anatomy of his female nude in Morning in a City, or the stony faces of the diners in Nighthawks. Now that we know that Hopper was never a painting prodigy, we can think of his later paintings as deliberately revisiting the limitations of his adolescence and finding virtue and power there. There's a classic move in American culture, to see the unschooled and homespun as more authentic, and especially as more authentically American than the sophistries of those decadent old Europeans, end quote. And yeah, this is something I think about sometimes. You know, oddly for a nation so deeply entrenched in its origins, in the idea of the Protestant work ethic, there does seem to be this pervasive narrative throughout the centuries in the United States that someone who is just miraculously gifted, born perfect in a certain field or talent, without help or instruction from anyone else, is so much better, so much more deserving of being glorified than someone who had to work hard at it who trained and grew over time, maybe made some mistakes along the way. Not only does that do a disservice to the true fact that many people do have to work hard to perfect skills and talents, and leads many to give up if they think they're not perfect at their first shot, but it erases the many people who help someone hone their craft and make it to where they are. It leads us to only praising leaders, celebrities, star athletes, people in the spotlight, and forgetting all about the people the coaches, the teachers, the drivers, the medics, the operations managers, the custodial workers, the domestic workers, the caregivers, who make someone's life like that possible. I don't think there is anything at all wrong with Edward Hopper copying other artists as he learned his craft, but I do think it speaks volumes that he chose to, or felt he had to, particularly as he became this emblem of Americana incarnate, hide that he had had any type of early instruction or influence, and thereby taking credit over these other artists instead of bringing them into the fold with him. The New York Times mentions that part of what was so revolutionary and captivating about Hopper's work was his depiction of average, everyday life in America. And they conclude, as I agree, quote, If Hopper claimed to be an absolute original, uninfluenced by others, his greatest paintings work hard to convey a different image of their maker. Their studied awkwardness asks us to imagine him as someone who might indeed have started his career copying someone else, as just your average American, working hard to make good." End quote. So just on the back of the United Kingdom putting into place stricter coronavirus restrictions following a rise in cases, the London Marathon has announced it will indeed go on as planned this weekend. 
Instead of running through the whole city, the men's, women's, and wheelchair races will be on a loop course through St. James Park. One, the athletes will have to complete 19.6 times, and there will not be any spectators. Additionally, the athletes are being quarantined in a biosecure bubble at a hotel with their teams, and while there are only 100 athletes competing, there are upwards of 500 operations staff who will be on site. And to help everyone keep their distance during the marathon, every athlete and staff member will be outfitted with a bump device. Bump, developed by British company Tharsis, is a small wearable that can be worn as a lanyard or clipped onto clothing. It notifies the wearer by lighting up and making a sound when they get too close to someone else also wearing a bump. It also tracks how long and how often bump users stay within certain distances of each other so that that data can be used for potential contact tracing later. Bump was developed to be used in workplace settings, which... Personally, I feel a little iffy about in terms of privacy and workers' rights, but I do think using it for a marathon, something all athletes at least have opted into doing, is a pretty cool use case. It might be hard to keep up the appropriate distances when you're racing alongside each other, but in the event that someone does test positive afterwards, at least there will be a very clear way to see everyone that they were close to. I'll be interested to see how it goes, because it could be an interesting solution for different kinds of events going forward. That is all for today. As always, the Kotke Ride Home was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go practice my smizing. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.